stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Danao Mengestu, is the author of two previous novels, his 2007 The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears and his 2010 follow-up How to Read the Air. Mengestu is named by The New Yorker as one of the 20 notable writers under 40, along with the likes of Karen Russell, Gary Steingart, and Nicole Krauss. He is a graduate of Georgetown University and Columbia University's MFA program in fiction. And in addition to his novels, Mengestu is also a journalist, having written for Rolling Stone about the war in Darfur, for Jane Magazine about the war in northern Uganda, and about warlords in eastern Congo for Granta Magazine. Mengestu was the 2012 recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and he's here today to talk about his latest novel, All Our Names, a book NPR calls A Subtle Masterpiece, one that uses love and war to powerfully explore a third equally dramatic theme, identity. Welcome to Between the Covers, Danao Mengestu. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. All Our Names has two narrators and, and two settings, an American social worker named Helen living in a small Midwestern American town in the 1960s and an Ethiopian college student studying in a university in Uganda during the same time period. So, so maybe we can start with what you found compelling about juxtaposing mm. these two locations and also juxtaposing them in this in this specific time. Yeah. You know, initially I actually thought the entire novel would be set in Kampala and, and during that time period because it was a moment of, of sort of still great hope and optimism after the end of the colonial era. And after writing that for a while, I began to realize that there were strong echoes to what was happening in Africa, to what was also happening here in the United States with the civil rights movement. And of course, being you know, having been born in Ethiopia and raised in America, I'm sort of inevitably drawn to figuring out how I can create narratives that sort of mirror that duality. Um, and in this case, it wasn't so much about mirroring it through my own personal experiences, but about seeing the way when we take two seemingly disparate parts of history and we rub them up together, how we can find the echoes between them. And um, I, th I hope. And I imagine that it's through the characters and through their experiences. So you can begin to see the life of somebody in Uganda in the early 1970s with the life of someone in a small town in the Midwest as sharing um, a remarkable number of things in common. Well, I'm sure a lot of Americans have associations with um, the United States during the Civil Rights Movement and into the early 70s. What are, what are some of the things that are going on in Africa at the time for those that, that don't know? Yeah, so this is actually exactly in, those, in the post-Civil Rights Movement era and the same thing with the post-colonial era. So after those, um, you know, sort of, very optimistic and exciting years, I think there was a sort of um, deflation. You know, there's a sense that all of these dreams um, had been 
somewhat realized, but now that that period was over, there was a kind of deliberate attempt on the part of governments here in the U.S. and in Africa to kind of reverse that order. So in Africa, you have the rise of tyranny, you have the rise of autocratic regimes, oftentimes by the same men who were the revolutionary leaders who who liberated their countries. And here in America, you have the death of Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy, the riots that happened across the cities in America because of those assassinations, and the sense that there's an enduring poverty that the civil rights legislations weren't able to overcome. And yet it seems like you you somehow tease out a moment when there still is this sense of dynamic hope. Yeah, because it's just exactly before I think – not that hope ever gets extinguished, but – in that moment when you know the sort of the two young men who are in, are at the heart of the scenes in Africa where they perhaps should stop being optimistic and yet at the same time they have no choice but to continue to be so because this is all they have they still want to be play a role in shaping their countries and play a role in shaping Africa's future even though they know that perhaps that period might have actually passed one of the things that I thought was and also an interesting juxtaposition is in the American chapters we have Helen the social worker who starts a romantic relationship with Isaac uh, somebody, the African yeah. immigrant who who comes uh, from the other half of the story. They're an interracial couple and the racism that still exists yeah. even though we've had the, the beginnings of the civil rights movement. And then in the African chapters, we have Isaac and his friend, the narrator, in, on, a, on a campus. And they really seem to be pushing against issues of, of class. Yeah. So we're not really dealing with issues of race. How did you see those two... Um, frontiers um, mirroring or resonating against each other? Um, Very much so. You know, there's a sense in which, um, you know, there's actually a series of competing love stories, I think, throughout the novel. You know, so Helen and Isaac have this um, sort of very quiet love affair that actually can't have a public expression. You know, so the civil rights era has happened, and perhaps you can go into a restaurant and eat at a counter by yourself, but if you go with a white woman next to you, then suddenly the entire dynamic changes. And on this college campus, you have the sense that, all right, the countries have been liberated. Um, Everyone is supposed to have sort of a better future and role to play in their countries, and yet at the same time, the people who actually really have access to that are the wealthy and the privileged students, the students of, you know, who are the sons of ministers, who are the ones who actually then end up controlling the reins of power for the next generation. And so in both ways, you see the ways in which these sort of private ambitions um, and private desires don't actually have a public space in which they can actually exist and live. It was interesting to see Isaac and, and the narrator of the African uh, section grapple with the protests that they were doing. Part of it felt like it was a a protest on campus around class and another about just the absurdity of authoritarian regimes rather than potentially putting forth a vision of what would be the future. It was seen more like it was a critique of the, of the status quo. Is that, that is, right? That is, that is correct. I don't, think, um, I don't think they're at that stage in the novel and in, in their lives where they could have seriously imagined trying to you know, play an active role in, in, in a military revolution. I think what they do see are the sort of ways in which their government has sort of failed them. You know? And as you said, sometimes the only weapon that you have is to sort of mock um, the authoritarian regime. And then by mocking them, you can sort of provoke a response that gives you a certain moral authority, and that's kind of really what they're looking for. You know, they they want to be college students. They have ambitions and dreams of becoming college students, but they know they probably never will be because they're too poor. The system has sort of already excluded them, and so what they have left is this ability to um, to stage these protests, to mock, to make flyers, to um, to be slightly ironic in their approach to it. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Danao Mengestu about his latest novel, All Our Names. You, you've said in other interviews that you consider your three novels a trilogy of sorts. Can you describe how the three fit together and, and 
how all our names is is a part of this and and if it does differ in what ways does it stand out as a different enterprise yeah um you know it's it's all three novels obviously share certain like thematic elements in common you know they all sort of straddle these lines between Africa and the United States and sometimes parts of Europe. Um, they're all very concerned with the process of sort of recreating your your identity and your home now once those things have been stripped from you. So I'm always interested in, we tend to call those narratives refugee narratives or immigrant narratives, but really what do we do in the wake of such traumatic loss? Um, and that traumatic loss can be both an individual or a country. And so all three novels do that, um, both in the level of the loss of a country and also the loss of the people that you really love and how do these characters reform themselves as a result of that loss. And so, um, and with this novel, I think it's, um, you know, I imagine it as being my, it was a more difficult and I think more ambitious book to write. Um, there are larger scenes that take place in Africa. I worked longer as a journalist, so I had a larger historical and contemporary perspective to work with. And so half the novel takes place in Africa, whereas in the other two novels, um, the characters were always looking back. And here there's actually a strong sense of setting in place. Well, I loved how you once said that the first two were uh, dealing with rupture, and, yeah. and here we're dealing with what's happening after the rupture. You called it the opposite of things fall apart, essentially, yeah. how things could come together. Yeah, it's, a, it's the idea of convergence. You know, these sort of um, the other two novels really begin when the characters have, have, have been forced out of their homes. And in this case, um, you know, you have these characters who are always home throughout the narrative, and someone else comes inside. And it's how do these stories then sort of merge together once you begin to put them side by side, once you begin to put a college campus in Africa with a small town in the Midwest, how do they echo and reflect on one another? You mentioned that a lot of people like to call this refugee fiction or immigrant fiction, and I know that you find that problematic. And I would just, I would love for you to just touch on on why you find that is a limiting and a, and both and also a problematic term for for what you're doing. Um, because I think it becomes very close to sort of labeling it. Um along ethnic lines rather than sort of thinking of it as as a human, as a general sort of universal human experience. And for me, migration is a very universal human experience. And we tend to think of immigration as what happens between sort of the north and south. You know, the people from the southern parts of the world are migrating their way up here. Um, when in fact, when as a novelist, that's not what you're concerned about. You're concerned with the loss that comes with losing a home. Um, and you don't want the stories to be reduced to the sort of experiences of what happens to the other. And oftentimes that category of immigration is one way of highlighting that these are the stories of the other. And perhaps now those who don't belong to those societies can take a glimpse into them. It's a sort of voyeuristic pleasure rather than um, a real literary desire to kind of engage with a narrative that may very well echo your own, even if you've never been to Africa. When I had Gary Steingart on the show about his his new memoir, he brought up the the interesting phenomenon in the United States that immigrant fiction is, or what we call immigrant fiction, is is very uh, popular and, and desired. Yet we don't translate any novels no. from other cultures. So people who aren't moving here, who yeah. have different experiences, we don't seem to have the same desire to yeah. translate them. He didn't necessarily offer a theory about yeah. that, but I, I wondered if that, if anything came to mind about yeah. why we might have that weird dissonance. I, that's 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 a good point. Um, you know, I, I'd also say that perhaps why, why I'm resistant to immigrant fiction, especially in the American context, is this is a narrative. America, the American narrative is one of migration. So to suddenly say this is an immigrant narrative um, sort of displaces its role as a sort of central theme across American literature. So you're suddenly saying, well, there's American literature now that 
there's the sort of subset. It's the sort of new subset of people like myself who are coming from Africa and Latin America and Asia, voices who weren't normally heard in American literary fiction. But we are American, and we're also writing about our own countries at the same time, and we're bringing them together. So to exclude us from that is a little bit frustrating. And, you know, perhaps that is also a reflection of why we don't um, translate as much, you know, because we have already um, voices from so many other places sort of contributing to this growing, constantly evolving thing that we call American literature, whereas other societies have a kind of more hermetic identity. You know, they've been sort of sealed for much longer periods of time. You could always know who was French for, for hundreds of years until really recently. And so our identity has never been so solid. It's never been so concentrated. So our voices are always kind of constantly expanding and looking outwards. Well, not, that's well, a, not that it's an excuse, but sure. Yeah. No, that's an interesting yeah. way to look at it. And, and speaking of identity, uh, obviously the title of the book, "All Our Names," is, is pointing to that. We, it suggests a play on identity and the reconstruction of identity, and the idea of counter lives. And we see that in the novel over and over again. People yeah. have many names. Names are being lost. Names are being created. And, and our African narrator, for instance, he's he's given up the names of his family. And is called at various times many different yeah. names, whether it's Bird, Professor, Langston, Dickens. What are you? What are you working through with that dynamic of mm. of names and, and reinvention? Um, yeah, I think some of it is is um, a kind of pushback against the idea that we have a sort of singular identity. You know, there's um, a question that you're always asked, or that I'm always asked, is where are you from? And people oftentimes hope to have one response to that question. Where, in fact, I'm, I'm often at a loss to say where I'm from because I feel like I am from multiple places. So to some degree, you want to argue that there's multiplicity to our identities and that multiplicity is is one of our great assets and one of our great sort of things. And let's not try to, to sort of narrow ourselves down into singular boxes. Um, and at the same time, I think there's a recognition that our identities are shaped by the political environments that we live in. And as those things sort of um, erupt and change, we change with them, you know, and we may not always accept those things, but we are vulnerable to them. And so even when the narrator leaves and comes to America, there's a sense that, you know, um, Helen says, you know, I've, one of the things I felt sorry for him is that here he could be called boy or even nigger. And that was those are other names that he also adapts that or that he doesn't adapt to, but that get thrust upon him. I was wondering if the choice of Isaac was uh, was an intentional one around this idea of substitution of names when Isaac is literally subs- – um, the ram yeah. is substituted for Isaac, Isaac in the sacrifice of Abraham. I, 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 I was very aware of that, but the um, the original desire was the, the very first failed novel that I spent years writing um, and, of course, which will never be published, has these characters whose names I've held on to and I've put them in all three of my novels. It's a way of keeping that. I learned a lot from that novel. Um, it should never be you know read by anybody else, but to some degree, those characters that existed there you know, 15 years ago are, are present in this novel. I was maybe I was looking too much for meaning in yeah. in the names because of, of the meditation around names, but I also wondered if if um, all the African well not all the African mm. characters, but a lot of them have biblical names. So we have yeah. Isaac, Daniel, Joseph, and yet we have Helen as the American narrator, and we also have the rich people on campus called Alexes. Yeah. And I wondered if the the contrast between like the Hellenistic and Greek names and the biblical names was was playing on some sort of dynamic, or was I really yeah. looking? Too no, that's, far? no. But so, I mean, th- there are certain things, you know. So within that, the very first novel did have the Isaac character is really the, that that is very explicitly to the Bible. Um, so I was very much aware of that tradition when I named that character, and and to some degree, I knew those things which would sort of correspond. Um, 
you know, I would I would like to say that I was conscious of. I you, you're aware of Helen, of course, once you use that character's name. But the initial when I wrote her, she just was Helen right away. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as I heard a voice, and you just start kind of clacking away, and suddenly she introduces herself as Helen, and it felt right. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let's let our listeners hear some of the prose from all our names. Yeah. On the bus ride to the capital, I gave up all the names my parents had given me. I was almost 25, but by any measure much younger. I shed those names just as our bus crossed the border into Uganda. We were closing in on Lake Victoria. I knew Kampala was close, but even then I had already committed myself to thinking of it only as the capital. Kampala was too small from what I, for what I imagined. That city belonged to Uganda, but the capital, as long as it was nameless, had no such allegiances. Like me, it belonged to no one and anyone could claim it. I spent my first few weeks in the capital trying to imitate the gangs of boys that lingered around the university and the cafes and bars that bordered it. Back then, all the boys our age wanted to be revolutionaries. On campus and in the poor quarters where Isaac and I lived, there are dozens of Lumumbas, Marleys, Malcolms, Cesares, Kenyattas, Singores, and Selassies. Boys who woke up every morning and donned the black hats and olive green costumes of their heroes. I couldn't match them, so I let the few strands of hair on my chin grow long. I bought a used pair of green pants that I wore daily, even after the knees had split open. I tried to think of myself as a revolutionary in the making, though I had come to the capital with other ambitions. A decade earlier, there had been an important gathering of African writers and scholars at the university. I read about it in a week-old newspaper that had finally made its way to our village. That conference gave shape to my adolescent ambitions, which until then consisted solely of leaving. I knew afterward where to go and what I wanted to be. A famous writer, surrounded by like-minded men in the heart of what had to be the continent's greatest city. You've been listening to Danao Mangestu read from his latest novel, All Our Names. There's there's also a, a, a really interesting juxtaposition, Danao, in, in All Our Names around the specificity of naming and then also a lack of uh, yeah. what feels like in a lack of specificity, an intentional one, where even though you name Kampala, it quickly becomes called the yeah. capital and the the town in the Midwest of the United States is uh, very – it's ambiguous yeah. where it is. You know, It could be Ohio. It could be Indiana. But it's, it's um, not pinpointed. Yeah. And I wondered if you were aiming for some sort of mythic quality by, by pulling back on details in, in a certain way and leaning into details in yeah. another. I, you know, I, I wouldn't say mythic so much as um, I wanted the novel um, and the scenes, in, especially in Kampala, to be more – to be about more than just the specificity of the history of Uganda, you know, and obviously you can you can universalize that experience by being particular, but at the same time, you know, I knew Kampala um, as a journalist and I knew what had happened there, and I was approaching it from really the perspective of Isaac. You know, he comes to the capital for very specific reasons, which is not to engage in its politics, but to become a writer because of this conference that happened in 1962, and I sort of decided to rest on that perspective because that's the perspective that controls that narrative voice. You know, he. He is, he is there um, and he's a victim to the politics, but at the same time he is um, watching everything from the sidelines very much. And, um, and for me it felt important to stay with that and not try, to, not try to sort of force it into a narrative that then tries to become a historical document at the same time. Once you start – if I had started naming the presidents of Uganda at that time, then suddenly I, find, I, would, I felt like I would have found myself obligated to, to be accurate to that particular history rather than being free to invent the world that I wanted to invent for my characters. Well, our, our two narrators – Helen in America and and the narrator in the African section, they're both fascinated with 
someone else. And, and so Helen yeah. is fascinated with Isaac and our narrator in the African section is fascinated with the Isaac yeah. in the African section. But both of them, it, it's, it's almost as if they can't really grasp th- yeah. what's going on in the interiority yeah. of the person they're fascinated by. So Isaac in the American section and Isaac in the African section both remain somewhat inscrutable yeah. to the reader and to the narrator. What, what, are, you, what are you doing with, with that? Um, I, I think I'm just trying to be elusive to some degree. You know, I, I wanted characters who, um, who didn't reveal themselves that easily, who sort of fought against that. And to some degree, what you end up learning about isn't those particular characters, but the desires of the people next to them. So you end up learning more about Helen um, because of her ambitions and desires to sort of attach herself to this man and the ways in which she's willing to, to tolerate all the things that he doesn't tell her. And of course, because the two narratives are are sort of closely intertwined, you're watching the stories sort of um, reveal themselves in a, in a nonlinear fashion. So you learn more about um, the Isaac and Kampala later on in the scenes in America, what actually happens to him later on. And so it was one way of weaving together these multiple strands and, um, and displacing some of that information and moving it towards um, from a sort of linear line and shifting it onto a larger structure. Well, you really do get... Uh you learn more about Helen when you see her naive idealism yeah. and her and her uh, not very sophisticated sense of what sort of racism will appear yeah. in certain circumstances, and and I do think when we have that inscrutability around Isaac, when she do, when Helen does do these these naive acts, we have no idea how he's going to respond, yeah. which yeah. is which is great from a dramatic perspective. Yeah. And and it, with whole and it's you know I think fairly accurate when you think of people who have suffered trauma. You know they don't. Um, release themselves that easily or that quickly. And so you know by the time the Isaac narrator presents himself in America that he's a fairly damaged human being. And Helen's inability to understand that is partly reflective of the fact that he's not willing and perhaps able and isn't sure he should release himself to her. You know, what if she can't handle those stories? And the fear that perhaps those narratives seem so radically different from her own experience that to open himself up to try to share them is requires a kind of act of, of a leap of faith that he's not ready to take yet. And eventually, hopefully, the reader finds some of those questions resolved as the characters sort of progress and grow deeper in their, in their affections for each other. Can you speak a little bit about uh, how political journalism in war zones has influenced this? I, I know that the character Joseph in one of the revolutionaries in the African section of All Our Names, he reminds me of General Chuma in the in, – in the East Congo story yeah. that you wrote in the sense yeah. that you you humanize yeah. people doing horrible things. Yeah. Essentially, uh, they may have good – in some respects, good intentions even when they do uh-huh. uh, really barbarous acts. Yeah. And I, I would, I'm interested in both what stories grab you to do in a journalistic fashion and then how that journalism is is appearing in this book. Yeah. Well, in, in that case, I mean you, you actually hit exactly where some of that connections came from. Um, I was in Eastern Congo um, trying to follow um, a revolutionary army or a rebel army that had been sort of created in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide and had been in Congo for a long time. And the Congolese army was fighting against this military group. And I interviewed this colonel in, in Eastern Congo, and he did um, – he was a man who was capable of, of, of violence very quickly and very easily, but at the same time believed that he was doing so in the desires of making his country a better place. And the longer we spoke, the more – the more I felt really sure that he did believe that, whether or not it was true is a different thing, but his desires and his ambitions to really make his um, his home, the people that he loves, the country that he cares about, into something more stable is, was, I think, 
definitely evident. And to some degree, you want to rescue um, a character like Joseph in the novel who does commit those acts of war from the sort of general um, perception of them as tyrants or as this pure sort of bloodthirsty men. They're not. And Joseph needed to to play that role. You know, he needed to be both a man capable of, of great violence, but also a very human and and, and loving person in many ways. Um, so that was a huge influence. I mean, a lot of times it's also been, um, you know, in Sudan, I spent a lot of time with young revolutionary kids, kids who, who, t- who told me they were revolutionary soldiers in this army that they knew absolutely nothing about. Um, and you saw those kids and you thought, well, you guys are, your heart is completely there, but you're being unfortunately manipulated by, by powers much greater than yours. Um, and so to some degree, the the characters on the college campus when they're when they're mocking the students who pretend to be real revolutionaries. There's a sense in which when you're pretending to be a revolutionary from a place, place of privilege, you're denying the people who actually are out there fighting. You're denying the ones who actually claim to be revolutionaries because they have nothing else to be in their lives. Hmm. In reading reviews of All Our Names, I noticed several people feeling like Obama or his shadow was cast over the American no. section with the interracial couple that eventually moves to Chicago. That was not something that occurred to me, and, and I'm not sure that I, I totally buy no. it. But I was curious. I was curious. I wanted to ask you because no. I didn't know if that was in there as as something that was maybe motivating the pre-Obama era no. and hinting at it in the future. Um, you know, the, the, I began the novel before the, the the Obama campaign. Those things were sort of already in motion. Inevitably, I was still writing them, of course, while those things were happening. And I, you know, I was aware of their fact that, like, I was like, oh, that's that's kind of funny and interesting, yeah. but never with the idea that I wanted to sort of um, give voice to that experience. I thought um, I never thought I never saw it in, in that way in the least bit. I was really curious about. Um, just bringing those two periods in, in American and African history together and bringing them together through these characters. Um, and very, I'm always, you know, the issues of, of, of race in America, I think, persist. And I wanted, sometimes it's easier to talk about them in the past um, and to allow characters to experience them in the past because we are, um, we like to believe that we're beyond those problems. And so you put it back 20 or 30 years and you can sometimes say things um, that way that you couldn't directly today. I think it was crucial to have a a white American narrator as one of the narrators yeah. to implicate white readers yeah. back into the fact that this is an ongoing potentially never ending struggle yeah exactly and 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 there's I'm sure a part of me that was also um when Helen emerged, that was sort of exciting because for once I was like well you you can't label this purely as an immigrant literature anymore, right you can't exclude this half of the novel, which is narrated from the most American perspective possible. So if you want to call it an immigrant literature, then you're not doing it because of the contents of the novel, but because of how you're choosing to perceive the author. And that's a much more problematic thing for me. Yeah, I, I can see that. You, you've said that your your first two novels are in conversation with poems yeah. by Rilke and by Dante. Uh, is this novel, is All Our Names in conversation with another work in some way? Uh, yes, um, a season of migration to the north um, by the wonderful Sudanese writer Tayeb Salah, um, which is a, a very slim. It's I think the 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 best um, and most amazing post-colonial novel, um, the one that should be sort of assigned to every African studies student in in the world, and to actually really every person who likes literature. It's a, it's a beautiful book, and it brings um, and it collapses the sort of experiences of an African man um, who comes to London, and it's um, and there's references to Othello and Shakespeare. Um, and philosophy and poetry, and it's um, and then these really beautiful evocative scenes in the deserts in Sudan, uh, and it was 
just just a marvel of a novel. Um, and as much as possible, this book was um, was paying some debts to that, you know, by showing these two different competing landscapes through these characters. There's an, also a, an interracial relationship in that novel that forms the sort of core tragedy. Hmm. And and given that you've you've called these this a trilogy essentially it suggests a potential departure for your next project is there a departure thematically or narratively for you and what you're working on now you know i i I think so i've 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 been saying that i haven't been working on anything but it's um now that there is something shaping i always knew even before that that i wanted something different now you know you feel like you've you've had these sets of concerns and to some degree those concerns are both sort of aesthetic and very personal they're reflections of who i am and the experiences i've had as a writer and as a person and you've worked through those and as through three different narrative types and three different voices and now you feel like what where else can I go? Where else have I been? What else have I lived through? And what's happening now, if it does feel different, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't, um, it seems concerned with something else, at least. And you can't name, you can't name for our listeners a hint of what that might be? Um, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great having you on Between the Covers today. And thank you, David. It was a pleasure. We were talking today to author Danao Mangestu about his latest novel, All Our Names. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.